Alright, hello everybody, and welcome back, after a very long time, to Storytime with Alaric. We are partway through Hyperion, partway through the poet's tale. And we begin today there. Of course, I had summoned the Shrike. I knew that. I had summoned it by beginning my epic poem about it. In the beginning was the word. I retitled my poem, The Hyperion Cantos. It was not about the planet, but about the passing of the self-centered... It was not about the planet, but about the passing of the self-styled titans called humans. It was about the unthinking hubris of a race which dared to murder its homeworld through sheer carelessness and then carried that danger, dangerous arrogance to the stars, only to meet the wrath of a god which humanity had helped to sire. Hyperion was the first serious work I had done in many years, and it was the best I would ever do. What began as a comic serious homage to the ghost of John Keats became my last reason for existence, an epic tour de force in an age of mediocre farce. Hyperion Cantos was written with a skill I could never have attained, with a mastery I could never have gained, and sung in a voice which was not mine. The passing of humankind was my topic. The Shrike was my muse. A score more people died before King Billy evacuated the city of poets. Some of the evacuees went to Endymion or Keats or one of the other new cities, but most voted to take the seed ships back to the web. King Billy's dream of a creative utopia died, although the king himself lived on in the gloomy palace at Keats. Leadership of the colony passed to the Home Rule Council, which petitioned the hegemony for membership and immediately established a self-defense force. The SDF, made up of primarily of the same indigenes who had been cudgeling each other over a decade before, but commanded now by self-styled officers from our new colony, succeeded only in disturbing the peacefulness of the night with their automated skimmer patrols and marring the beauty of the returning desert with their mobile surveillance mechs. Surprisingly, I was not the only one to stay behind. At least two hundred remained, although most of us avoided social contact, smiling politely when we passed on Poet's Walk or while we ate apart in the echoing emptiness of the dining dome. The murders and disappearances continued, averaging about one a local fortnight, although they were usually discovered not by us, but by the regional SDF commander, who demanded a headcount of citizens every few weeks. The image that remains in my mind from that first year is an unusually communal one, the night we gathered on the commons to watch the seed ships leave. It was at the height of the autumn meteor season, and Hiberian's night skies were already ablaze with gold streaks and red crisscrosses of flame when the seed ship's engines fired, a small sun flared, and for an hour we watched as friends and fellow artists receded as a streaking fusion of flame. Sad King Billy joined us that night, and I remember that he looked at me before he solemnly re-entered his ornate couch to return to the safety of Keats. In the dozen years which followed, I left the city only half a dozen times, once to find a biosculptor who would rid me of my satyr affectation, the other times to buy food and supplies. The Shrike Temple had renewed the Shrike pilgrimages by this time, and on my trips I would use their elaborate avenue to death in reverse, the walk to Cronus Keep, the aerial tram across the Brindle Range, the wind wagons, the Sharon Bridge down the Hooli, the com coming back, I would stare at the pilgrims and wonder who would survive. Few visited the city of poets. Our half-finished towers began to look like tumbled ruins. The gallerias, with their splendid metal-glass domes and covered archways, grew heavy with vines. Pyreweed and scargrass poked up between the flagstones. 
The SDF added to the chaos, setting mines and booby traps to kill the Shrike, but only succeeding in devastating once beautiful sections of the city. Irrigation broke down. The aqueduct collapsed. The desert encroached. I moved from room to room in King Billy's abandoned palace, working on my poem, waiting for my muse. When you think about it, the cause and effect begins to resemble some mad logic loop by the data artist Carolus, or perhaps a print by Escher. The Shrike had come into existence because of the incantory powers of my poem, but the poem could not have existed without the threat-slash-presence of the Shrike as muse. Perhaps I was a bit mad in those days. In a dozen years, sudden death culled the city of dilettantes until only the Shrike and I remained. The annual passage of the Shrike pilgrimage was a minor irritation, a distant caravan crossing the desert to the time tombs. Sometimes a few figures returned, fleeing across vermilion sands to the refuge of Kronos Keep, twenty kilometers to the south. More often, no one emerged. I watched from the shadows of the city. My hair and beard had grown until they covered some of the rags I wore. I came out mostly at night, moving through the ruins like a furtive shadow, sometimes gazing at my lighted palace tower like David Hume peering in his own windows and solemnly deciding that he wasn't home. I never moved, moved the food synthesizer from the dining dome to my apartment, preferring instead to eat in the echoing silence under the cracked Duomo, like some addled Eloi fattening himself up for the inevitable Morlock. I never saw the Shrike. Many nights, just before dawn, I had awakened from a nap at a sudden sound, the scratch of metal on stone, the rasp of sand under something's foot. But although I was often sure that I was being watched, I never saw the watcher. Occasionally I made the short trip to the time tombs, especially at night, avoiding the soft, disconcerting, disconcerting tugs of an anti-entropic time tides when I moved through complicated shadows under the wings of the Sphinx or stared at stars through the emerald wall of the jade tomb. It was upon my return from one of these nocturnal pilgrimages that I found an intruder in my study. Impressive, M -M Martin, said King Billy, tapping one of several heaps of manuscript which lay about the room. Seated in the oversized chair at the long table, the failed monarch looked old, more melted than ever. It was obvious that he had been reading for, most, for several hours. Do you really think that mankind d deserves such an end? he asked softly. It had been a dozen years since I had heard the stutter. I moved away from the door, but did not answer. Billy had been a friend and patron for more than twenty standard years, but at that, but at that moment I could have killed him. The thought of someone reading Hyperion without permission filled me with rage. You d date your cantos, said King Billy, rifling through the most recent stack of completed pages. How did you get here? I snapped. It was not an idle question. Skimmers, dropships, and helicopters had not had much luck flying to the time tombs regions in recent years. The machines arrived sans passengers. It had done wonders in fueling the Shrike myth. The little man in the rumpled cape shrugged. His uniform was meant to be brilliant and regal, but merely made him look like an overweight harlequin. I followed the last batch of pilgrims, he said, and then c came down from Keep Kronos to visit. I noticed that you've written nothing in many months, M M Martin. Can you explain that? I glowered in silence while sidling closer. Perhaps I can explain it, said King Billy. He looked at the last completed page of Hyperion Cantos as if it had the answer to a long puzzled riddle. The last stanzas were written the same week last year that J.T. Tilo disappeared. So, I had moved to the far edge of the table now, 
Feigning a casual attitude, I pulled a short stack of manuscript pages closer and moved them out of Billy's reach. So that w w was, according to the SDF monitors, the d d date of the death of the last remaining poet city dweller, he said. The last, except for y you, that is, Martin. I shrugged and began moving around the table. I needed to get to Billy without getting the manuscript in the way. I know you haven't finished it, Martin, he said in his deep, sad voice. There is still some chance that humanity survives the fall. No, I said, and sidled closer. But you can't write it, can you, Martin? You can't c compose this poetry unless your muse is shedding blood, can you? Bullshit, I said. Perhaps, but a fascinating coincidence. Have you ever wondered why you have been spared, Martin? I shrugged again and slid another stack of papers out of his reach. I was taller, stronger, and meaner than Billy, but I had to be sure that none of the manuscript would be damaged if he struggled as I lifted him out of his seat and threw him out. It's time we did something about this problem, said my patron. No, I said. It's time you left. I shoved the last stacks of poetry aside and raised my arms, surprised to see a brass candlestick in one hand. Stop right there, please, King Billy said softly, and lifted a neural stunner from his lap. I paused only a second, then I laughed. You miserable little hangdog fraud, I said. You couldn't use a fucking weapon if your life depended on it. I stepped forward to beat him up and throw him out. My cheek was against the stone of the courtyard, but one eye was open enough for me to see that stars still shone through the broken latticework of the Galleria dome. I could not blink. My limbs and torso tingled with the pinpricks of returning sensation, as if my entire body had fallen asleep and that was now coming painfully awake. It made me want to scream, but my jaw and tongue refused to work. Suddenly I was lifted and propped against a stone bench so that I could see the courtyard and the dry fountain which Rithmet Corbett had designed. The bronze Lycoon wrestled with brown snakes in the flickering illumination of the pre-dawn meteor showers. I'm so sorry, Martin, came a familiar voice, but this m m madness has to end. King Billy came into my field of view, carrying a tall stack of manuscript. Other heaps of pages lay on the shelf of the fountain at the foot of the metal Trojan. An open bucket of kerosene sat nearby. I managed to blink. My eyelids moved like rusted iron. The stun should wear off any s s any minute, said King Billy. He reached into the fountain, raised a sheaf of manuscript, and ignited it with a flick of his cigarette lighter. No! I managed to scream through clenched jaws. The flames danced and died. King Billy let the ashes drop into the fountain and lifted another stack of pages, rolling them into a cylinder. Tears glistened on lined cheeks illuminated by flame. You c c called it forth, gasped the little man. It must be finished. I struggled to rise. My arms and legs jerked like a marionette's mishandled limbs. The pain was incredible. I screamed again, and the agonizing sound echoed from marble and granite. King Billy lifted a fat sheaf of papers and paused to read from the top page. Without story or prop, but my own weak mortality I bore, the load of this eternal quietude, the unchanging gloom, and three fixed shapes, ponderous upon my senses a whole moon. For my burning brain I measured shore, her silvered seasons shedded in the night, 
and ever day by day I thought I grew more gaunt and ghostly. Oftentimes I prayed, intense, that death would take me from the veil, and all its burdens, gasping with despair, of change hour after hour I cursed myself. King Billy raised his face to the stars and consigned this page to the flame. No, I cried again, forcing my legs to bend. I got to one knee, tried to steady myself with an arm ablaze with pinpricks, and fell on my side. The shadow in the cape lifted a stack too thick to roll and peered at it in the dim light. Then I saw a wan face, not pinned by human sorrows, but bright blanched, by an immortal sickness with kills not. It works a constant change, which happy death can put no end to, deathwards progressing, to no death with that visage it had passed, the lily and the snow and beyond these. I must not think now, though I saw that face. King Billy moved his lighter, and this and fifty other pages burst into flame. He dropped the burning papers into the fountain and reached for more. Please, I cried, and pulled myself up, stiffening my legs against the twitches of random nerve impulses while leaning against the stone bench. Please. The third figure did not actually appear so much as allow its presence to impinge upon my consciousness. It was as if it always had been there, and King Billy and I had failed to notice it until the flames grew bright enough. Impossibly tall, four-armed, molded in chrome and cartilage, the shrike turned its red gaze on us. King Billy gasped, stepped back, and then moved forward to feed more cantos to the fire. Embers rose on warm drafts, a flight of doves burst from the vine-choked girders of the broken dome with an explosion of wing sound. I moved forward in a motion more lurch than step. The shrike did not move, did not shift its bloody gaze. Go, cried King Billy, stutter forgotten, voice exalted, a blazing mass of poetry in each hand. Return to the pit from whence you came. The shrike seemed to, in its, to incline its head ever so slightly. Red light gleamed on sharp surfaces. My lord, I cried, although to King Billy or to the apparition from hell, I did not know then and do not know now. I staggered the last few paces and reached for Billy's arm. He was not there. One second, the aging king was a hand's length from me, and in the next instant he was ten meters away, raised high above the courtyard stones. Fingers like steel thorns pierced his arms and chest and thighs, but he still writhed, and my cantos burned in his fists. The shrike held him out like a father offering his son for baptism. Destroy it, Billy cried, his pinned arms making pitiful gestures. Destroy it. I stopped at the fountain's edge, tottered weakly against the rim. At first I thought he meant destroy the shrike, and then I thought he meant the poem, and then I realized that he meant both. A thousand pages and more of my manuscript lay tumbled in the dry fountain. I picked up a bucket of kerosene. The shrike did not move except to pull King Billy slowly back against his chest in an oddly affectionate motion. Billy writhed and screamed silently as a long steel thorn emerged from his harlequin silk just above the breastbone. I stood there stupidly and thought of butterfly collections I had displayed as a child. 
Slowly, mechanically, I sloshed kerosene on the scattered pages. End it, gasped King Billy. Martin, for the love of God! I picked up the lighter from where he had dropped it. The shrike made no move. Blood soaked the black patches of Billy's tunic until they blended with the crimson squares already there. I thumbed the antique lighter once, twice, a third time, sparks only. Through my tears I could see my life's work lying in the dusty fountain. I dropped the lighter. Billy screamed. Dimly I heard blades rubbing against bone as he twisted in the shrike's embrace. Finish it, he cried. Martin, oh God. I turned then, took five fast paces, and threw the half-full bucket of kerosene. Fumes blurred my already blurred vision. Billy and the impossible creature that held him were soaked like two comics in a slapstick holly. I saw Billy blink and splutter. I saw the slickness on the shrike's chiseled muzzle reflect the meteor-brightened sky. And then the dying embers of burned pages in Billy's still-clenched fists ignited the kerosene. I raised my hands to protect my face too late, beard and eyebrows singed and smoldering, and staggered backward until the rim of the fountain stopped me. For a second, the pyre was a perfect sculpture of flame, a blue and yellow paeta with a four-armed Madonna holding a blazing Christ figure. Then the burning figure writhed and arced, still pinned by steel thorns and a score of scarpled talons, and a cry went up to which this day I cannot believe emanated from the human half of that death-embraced pair. The scream knocked me to my knees, echoed from every hard surface in the city, and drove the pigeons into wheeling panic. And the scream continued for minutes after the flaming vision simply ceased to be, leaving behind neither ashes nor retinal image. It was another minute or two before I realized that the scream I now heard was mine. Anticlimax is, of course, the warp and way of things. Real life seldom structures a decent denouement. It took me several months, perhaps a year, to recopy the kerosene-damaged pazes and to rewrite the burned cantos. It will be no surprise to learn that I did not finish the poem. It was not by choice. My muse had fled. The city of poets decayed in peace. I stayed another year or two, perhaps five, I do not know. I was quite mad by then. To this day, records of early Shrike pilgrimages tell of a gaunt figure, all hair and rags and bulging eyes, who would wake them from their gethmane sleep by screaming obscenities and shaking his fists at the silent time tombs, daring the coward within to show itself. Eventually, the madness burned itself out, although the embers will always glow, and I hiked the 1,500 kilometers to civilization, my backpack weighted down with just manuscript, surviving on rock eels and snow, and on nothing at all for the last ten days. The two and a half centuries since are not worth telling, much less reliving. The Polesian treatments to keep the instrument alive and waiting, two long, cold sleeps in illegal sublight cryogenic voyages, each swallowing a century or more, each taking its toll in brain cells and memory. I waited then. I wait still. The poem must be finished. It will be finished. In the beginning was the word. In the end, past honor, past life, past caring, in the end will be the word.
4. The Benares put into edge a little afternoon on the next day. One of the mantis had died in harness only twenty kilometers downriver from their destination, and a bedek had cut it loose. The other had lasted until they tied up to the bleached pier, then it rolled over in total exhaustion, bubbles rising from its twin air holes. Bedek ordered this man to cut loose as well, explaining that it had a slim chance of surviving if it drifted along in the more rapid current. The pilgrims had been awake and watching the scenery roll by since before sunrise. They spoke little, none had found anything to say to Martin Silenus. The poet did not appear to mind. He drank wine with his breakfast and sang body songs as the sun rose. The river had widened during the night, and by morning it was a two-kilometer-wide highway of blue-gray, cutting through the low green hills south of the Sea of Grass. There were no trees this close to the sea, and the browns and golds and heather tones of the main shrubs had gradually brightened to the bold greens of the two-meter-tall north grasses. All morning the hills had been pressed lower until now they were compressed into low bands of grassy bluffs on either side of the river. An almost invisible darkening hung above the horizon to the north and east, and those pilgrims who had lived on ocean worlds and knew it as the promise of the approaching sea had to remind themselves that the only sea now, now near, was comprised of several billion acres of grass. Edge never had been a large outpost, and now it was totally deserted. The score of buildings lining the rutted lane from the dock had, vacated, had the vacant gaze of all abandoned structures, and there were signs of the riverfront that the population had fled weeks earlier. The Pilgrim's Rest, a three-century-old inn just below the crest of the hill, had been burned. A. Bedek accompanied them to the summit of the low bluff. "'What will you do now?' Colonel Kassid asked the android. "'According to the terms of the temple bonditure, we are free after this trip,' said Bedek. We shall leave the Benares here for your return, and take the launch downriver, and then we go our way. With the general evacuations, asked Braun Lamia. No, Bedek smiled. We have our own purposes and pilgrimages on Hyperion. The group reached the rounded crest of the bluff. Behind them, the Benares seemed a small thing tied to a sagging dock. The hool ran southwest into the blue haze of distance between the town and curved west above it narrowing toward the impassable lower cataracts, a dozen kilometers upriver from edge. To their north and east lay the sea of grass. My God, breathed Braun Lamia. It was as if they had climbed the last hill in creation. Below them, a scattering of docks, wharves, and sheds marked the end of edge and the beginning of the sea. Grass stretched away forever, rippling sensuously in the slight breeze and seeming to lap like a green surf at the base of the bluffs. The green seemed infinite and seamless, stretching to all horizons and apparently rising to precisely the same height as far as the eye could see. There was not the slightest hint of the snowy peaks of the Brindle Range, which they knew lay some eight hundred kilometers to the north. The illusion that they were gazing at a green sea was nearly perfect, down to the wind-ruffled shimmers of stalks looking like whitecaps from shore. "'It's beautiful,' said Lamia who had never seen it before. It's striking at sunset and sunrise, said the council. Fascinating, murmured Sol Wintraub, lifting his infant so that she could see. She wiggled in happiness and concentrating on watching her fingers. A well-preserved ecosystem, Hetmastine said approvingly. The myrrh would be pleased. Shit, said Martin Silenus. The others turned to stare. There's no fucking wind wagon, said the poet. The four other men, women, and androids stared silently at the abandoned wharves and empty plain of grass. 
It's been delayed, said the council. Martin Silenus sparked a laugh. Or oh, it's left already. We were supposed to be here last night. Connell Cassad ran, raised his powered binoculars and swept the horizon. I find it unlikely that they would have left without us, he said. The wagon was to have been sent by the Shrike Temple priests themselves. They have a vested interest in our pilgrimage. We could walk, said Leonard Hoyt. The priest looked pale and weak, obviously in the grip of both pain and drugs, and barely able to stand, much less walk. No, said Cassad. It's hundreds of clicks in the grasses over our heads. Compasses, said the priests. Compasses don't work on Hyperion, said Cassad, still watching through his binoculars. Direction finders, then, said Hoyt. We have an IDF, but that isn't the point, said the council. The grass is sharp. Half a click out and we'd be nothing but tatters. And there are grass serpents, said Cassad, lowering the glasses. It's a well-preserved ecosystem, but not one to take a stroll in. Hoyt sighed and half collapsed into the short grass of the hilltop. There was something close to relief in his voice when he said, All right, we go back. Abedic stepped forward. The crew will be happy to wait and ferry you back to Keats in the Benares should the wind wagon not appear. No, said the council. Take the launch and go. Hey, just a fucking minute, cried Martin Silenus. I don't remember electing you dictator, amigo. We need to get there. If the fucking wind wagon doesn't show, we'll have to find another way. The council wheeled to face the smaller man. How? By boat? Takes two weeks to sail up the main and around the north lateral to Otho, or one of the other staging areas. And that's where there are, when there are ships available. Every seagoing vessel on Hyperion is probably evolve, involved in the evacuation effort. Dirigible, then, growled the poet. Bron Lamia laughed. Oh, yes, we have seen so many in the two days we've been on the river. Martin Silenus whirled and clenched his fists as if to strike the woman. Then he smiled. All right, then, lady, what do we do? Maybe if we sacrifice someone to a grass serpent, the transportation gods will smile on us. Bran Lamia's stare was arctic. I thought burned offerings were more your style, little man. Connell Cassad stepped between the two. His voice barked command. Enough! The council's right. We stay here until the wagon arrives. And Mastine and Lamia go with Abedic to supervise the unloading of our gear. Father Hoyt and M. Silenus will bring some wood up for a bonfire. A bonfire, said the priest. It was hot on the hillside. After dark, said Cassad. We want the wind wagon to know we're here. Now let's move. It was a quiet group that watched the powered launch move downriver at sunset. Even from two kilometers away, the council could see the blue skins of the crew. The Benares looked old and abandoned in its wharf, already a part of the deserted city. When the launch was lost in the distance, the group turned to watch the sea of grass. Long shadows from the river bluffs crept out across what the council already found himself thinking of as the surf and shallows. Further out, the sea seemed to shift in color, the grasses mellowing into an aquamarine shimmer before darkening to a hint of verdurous depths. The lapis sky melted into the reds and golds of sunset, illuminating their hilltop and setting the pilgrim's skin aglow with liquid light. The only sound was the whisper of wind in grass. We've got a fucking huge heap of baggage, Martin Silenus said loudly, for a bunch of folks on a one-way trip. It was true, thought the council. Their luggage made a small mountain on the grassy hilltop. Somewhere, somewhere in there, came the quiet voice of Hetmastine, may lie our salvation. What do you mean? asked Bron Lamia. 
Yeah, said Martin Silenus, laying back, putting his hands under his head and staring at the sky. Did you bring a pair of undershorts that are shrike-proof? The Templar shook his head slowly. The sudden twilight cast his face in shadow under the cowl of the robe. Let us not trivialize or dissemble, he said. It is time to admit that each of us has brought on this pilgrimage something which he or she hopes will alter the inevitable outcome when the moment arrives that we must face the Lord of Pain. The poet laughed. I didn't bring even my lucky fucking rabbit's foot. The Templar's hood moved slightly. But your manuscript, perhaps? The poet said nothing. Hetmastine moved his invisible gave, gaze to the tall man on his left. And you, Connell, there are several trunks which bear your name. Weapons, perhaps. Kassad raised his head, but did not speak. Of course, said Hetmastine, it would be foolish to go hunting without a weapon. What about me? asked Bran Lamia, folding her arms. Do you know what, what secret weapon I have smuggled along? The Templar's oddly accented voice was calm. We have not yet heard your tale, M. Lamia. It would be premature to speculate. What about the Council? asked Lamia. Oh, yes, it is obvious what weapon our diplomatic friend has in store. The Council turned from his contemplation of the sunset. I brought only some clothes and two books to read, he said truthfully. Ah, sighed the Templar, but what a beautiful spacecraft you left behind. Martin Silenus jumped to his feet. The fucking ship, he cried. You can call it, can't you? Well, goddammit, get your dog whistle out. I'm tired of sitting here. The council pulled a strand of grass and stripped it. After a minute, he said, even if I could call it, and you heard Abetic say that the comstats and repeater stations were down, even if I could call it, we couldn't land north of the Brindle Range. That meant instant disaster even before the strike began raging south of the mountains. Yeah, said Silenus, waving his arms in agitation, but we could get across this fucking lawn, call the ship. Wait until morning, said the council. If the wind wagon's not here, we will discuss alternatives. Fuck that, began the poet, but Kassad stepped forward with his back to him, effectively removing Silenus from the circle. M. Mastine, said the colonel, what is your secret? There was enough light from the dying sky to show a slight smile on the Templar's thin lips. He gestured toward the mound of baggage. As you see, my trunk is the heaviest and most mysterious of all. It's a Mobius cube, said Father Hoyt. I've seen ancient artifacts transported that way. Or fusion bombs, said Kassad. Het Mastine shook his head. Nothing so crude, he said. Are you going to tell us, demanded Lamia. When it is my turn to speak, said the Templar. Are you next? asked the council. We can listen while we wait. Sol Wintraub cleared his throat. I have number four, he said, showing the slip of paper, but I would be more than pleased to trade with the true voice of the tree. Wintraub left, lifted Rachel from his left shoulder to his right, put, patting her gently on the back. Hatmastine shook his head. No, there is time. I meant only to point out that in hopelessness there is always hope. We have learned much from the story so far. Yet each of us has some seed of promise buried even deeper than we have admitted. I don't see, began Father Hoyt, but was interrupted by Martin Silenus's sudden shout. It's the wagon! It's the fucking wind wagon! Here at last! It was another twenty minutes before the wind wagon tied up at one of the wharfs. The craft came out of the north, its sails white squares against dark plain draining of color. The last light had faded by the time the large ship had tacked close to the low bluff, folded its mainsails, and rolled to a stop. The council was impressed. The thing was wooden, handcrafted, and huge. 
curved in the pregnant lines of some seagoing galleon out of old earth's ancient history. The single gigantic wheel, set in the center of the curving hull, normally would have been invisible in the two-meter-tall grass, but the council caught a glimpse of the underside as he carried his luggage out into the wharf. From the ground it would be six or seven meters to the railing, and more than five times that height to the tip of the mizzenmast. From where he stood, panting from exertion, the council could hear the snap of pennants far above and a steady, almost subsonic hum that would be coming from either the ship's interior flywheel or its massive gyroscopes. A gangplank extruded from the upper hole and lowered itself to the wharf. Father Hoyt and Braun Lamia had to step back quickly or be crushed. The wind wagon was less well-lighted than the Benares. Illumination appeared to, be consi to consist of several lanterns hung hanging from spars. No crew had been visible during the approach of the ship, and no one came into view now. "'Hello!' called the council from the base of the gangplank. No one answered. "'Wait here a minute, please,' said Kassad, and mounted the long ramp in five strides. The others watched while Kassad paused at the top, touched his belt where the small death wand was tucked, and then disappeared amidships. Several minutes later, a light flared through broad windows at the stern, casting trapezoids of yellow on the grass below. "'Come up!' called Kassad from the head of the ramp. It's empty. The group struggled with their luggage, making several trips. The council helped Het Mestine with the heavy Mobius trunk, and through his fingertips he could feel a faint but intense vibration. So where the fuck is the crew? asked Martin Silenus when they were assembled in the foredeck. They had taken their single-file tour through the narrow corridors and cabins, down stairways more ladder than stairs, and through cabins not much bigger than the built-in bunks they contained. Only the rearmost cabin, the captain's cabin, if that was what it was, approached the size and comfort of standard accommodations on the Benares. "'It's obviously automated,' said Kassad. The force officer pointed out halyards which disappeared into slots on the deck, manipulators all but invisible amongst the rigging and spars, and the subtle hint of gears halfway up the lanteen-rigged rear mast. "'I didn't see a control center,' said Lamia, "'not so much as a disky or a C-spot nexus.' She slipped her comm log from her breast pocket and tried to interface on standard data, comm, and biomed frequencies. There was no response from the ship. The ship used to be crewed, said the council. Temple initiates used to accompany the pilgrims to the mountains. Well, they're not here now, said Hoyt, but I guess we can assume that someone is still alive at the tram station or Key Kronos. They sent the wagon for us. Or everyone's dead and the wind wagon is running on an automatic schedule, said Lamia. She looked over her shoulder as rigging and canvas creaked in a sudden gust of wind. Damn, it's weird to be cut off from everybody and everything like this. It's like being blind and deaf. I don't know how the colonials stand it. Martin Silenus approached the group and sat on the railing. He drank from a long green bottle and said, Where is the poet? Show him, show him. Muse his mind that I may know him. Tis the man who a man is an equal be he king or poorest of the beggar class, or any other wondrous thing. A man be twixt ape and Plato, tis the man with a bird, wren or eagle finds his way to all his, all its instincts he hath heard, the lion's roaring, and can tell what his horny throat expresseth. And to him the tiger's yell comes articulate and presseth on his ear like mother tongue. Where did you get that wine bottle? asked Kassad. Martin Silenus smiled. His eyes were small and bright in the lantern glow. The gallery's fully stocked and there's a bar. I declared it open. We should fix some dinner, said the council, although all he wanted at that moment was some wine. It had been more than ten hours since they had last eaten. 
There came a clank and whirr, and all six of them moved to the starboard rail. The hanging plank had drawn itself in. They whirled again as canvas unfurled, lines grew taut, and somewhere a flywheel hummed into the ultrasonic. Sails filled, the decks tilted slightly, and the wind wagon moved away from the wharf and into the darkness. The only sounds were the flap and creak of the ship, the distant rumble of the wheel, and the rasp of grass on the whole bottom. The six of them watched as the shadows of the bluff fell behind, the unlighted beacon pyre receding in a faint gleam of starlight on the pale wood, and then there were only the sky and night and swaying circles of lantern light. "'I'll go below,' said the council, "'and see if I can get a meal together.' The others stayed above a while, feeling the slight surge and rumble through the soles of their feet and watching the darkness path. The sea of grass was visible only as the place where stars ended and the flat blackness began. Kassad used a handbeam to illuminate glimpses of canvas and rigging, lines being pulled tight by invisible hands, and then he checked all the corners and shadowed places from stern to bow. The others watched in silence. When he clicked the light off, the darkness seemed less oppressive, the starlight brighter, a rich, fertile smell, more of a farm in springtime than of the sea, came to them on a breeze which had swept across a thousand kilometers of grass. Some time later, the council called to them, and they went below to eat. The galley was cramped, and there was no mess table, so they used the large cabin in the stern as their common room, pushing three of the trunks together as a makeshift table. Four lanterns swinging from low beams made the room bright. A breeze blew in when Hetmastine opened one of the tall windows above the bed. The council set plates piled high with sandwiches on the largest trunk and returned again with thick white cups and a coffee therm. He poured while the others ate. This is quite good, said Feedman Kassad. Where did you get the roast beef? The cold box is fully stocked. There's another large freezer in the aft pantry. Electrical? asked Hetmastine. No, double insulated. Martin Silenus sniffed a jar, found a knife on the sandwich plate, and added great dollops of horseradish to his sandwich. His eyes sparkled with tears as he ate. "'How long does this crossing generally take?' Lemia asked the council. He looked up from his study of the circle of hot black coffee in his cup. Uh, "'I'm sorry, what?' "'Crossing the Sea of Grass. How long?' "'A night and a half a day to the mountains,' said the council, "'if the winds are with us.' "'And then, how long to the mountains?' asked Father Hoyt. Less than a day, said the council. If the tramway is running, added Kassad. The council sipped the hot coffee and made a face. We have to assume it is. Otherwise... Otherwise what? demanded Lamia. Otherwise, said Colonel Kassad, moving to the open window and putting his hands on his hips. We will be stranded six hundred clicks from the time tombs and a thousand from the southern cities. The council shook his head. No, he said, the temple priests, or whoever are behind this pilgrimage, have seen to it that we've gotten this far. They'll make sure we go all the way. Braun Lamia crossed her arms and frowned. As what? Sacrifices? Martin Silenus whooped a laugh and brought out his bottle. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou the heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of its folk this pious morn, and little town, thy streets for evermore, will silent be and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate, can e'er return. Braun Lamia reached under her tunic and brought out a cutting laser no larger than her little finger. She aimed it at the poet's head. You miserable little shit. One more word out of you, and I swear... 
I'll slag you where you stand. The silence was suddenly absolute, except for the background rumble groan of the ship. The council moved toward Martin Silenus. Colonel Cassad took two steps behind Lamia. The poet took a long drink and smiled at the dark-haired woman. His lips were moist. Oh, build your ship of death, he whispered. Oh, build it. Lamia's fingers were white on the pencil laser. The council edged closer to Silenus, not knowing what to do, imagining the whipping beam of light, light fusing his own eyes. Gassad leaned toward Lamia like two meters of tense shadow. Madam, said Sol Wintrub from where he sat on the bunk against the far wall, need I remind you that there is a child present? Lamia glanced, glanced to her right. Wintrob had removed a deep drawer from a ship's cupboard and had set it on the bed as a cradle. He had bathed the infant and come in silently just before the poet's recitation. Now he set the baby softly in the padded nest. I'm sorry, Bron Lamia lowered the small labor laser. It's just that he makes me so angry. Wintrub nodded, rocking the drawer slightly. The gentle roll of the wind wagon, combined with the incessant rumble of the great wheel, appeared to have already put the child to sleep. We're all tired and tense, said the scholar. Perhaps we should find our lodgings for the night and turn in. The woman sighed and tucked the weapon in her belt. I won't sleep, she said. Things are too strange. Others nodded. Martin Silenus was sitting on the broad ledge below the stern windows. Now he pulled up his legs, took a drink, and said to Wintrub, Tell your story, old man. Yes, said Father Hoyt. The priest looked exhausted to the point of being cadaverous, but his feverish eyes burned. Tell us. We need to have the stories told. Time to think about them before we arrive. Wintrab passed a hand across his bald scalp. It is a dull tale, he said. I have never been to Hyperion before. There are no confrontations with monsters, no acts of heroism. It is a tale by a man whose idea of epic adventure is speaking to a class without his notes. All the better, said Martin Stylinus. We need a sporific. Sol Wintrib sighed, adjusted his glasses, and nodded. There were a few streaks of dark in his beard, but most of it had gone gray. He turned the lantern low over the baby's bed and moved to a chair, moved to a chair in the center of the room. The council turned down the other lamps and poured more coffee for those who wanted it. Sol Wintrib's voice was slow, careful in phrase and precise in wording, and before long the, lo the gentle cadence of his story blended with the soft rumble and slow pitchings of the wind wagon's progress north. All right, we are going to end our tale for today there. Um, hopefully I will see you in a week, and we will continue with the scholar's tale. The river leaves taste is bitter. So I hope you enjoyed listening, and I hope you can get home safe.